Let's go. Let's, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about and praying about this lesson. This is one that um, I wrote down a thought months and months and months ago. I literally don't, it's been a while, maybe a year or better, and just shelved it because it was a passage in, this, in the text we'll use today that I came across and felt the Holy Spirit begin to stir something, but it wasn't, I wasn't in a position to do anything with it, or I was in the middle of writing a book, or I was in the middle of a series, or there's always those things, sometimes they're not timely, so you shelve them, and most of the time, I shelve them and forget about them. It's like, uh, you know, go back and find them later or whatever, but this was one that kept hanging out in there, in my spirit. Part of the reason I think, t- today's title is, is uh, Pray, and be prepared. And part of the reason I think this hung out in my spirit is because I've been on a journey of trying to understand prayer through a different lens. Um, I've, I've been a prayer my entire life to some extent. When you're raised in the church, you're either a prayer or you're around a lot of praying. And so I've been around a lot of praying and, and tried to be a prayer. This is not technically a lesson on prayer tonight. I'm only introducing it that way because I've been on my own journey of praying trying to learn to pray, um, for lack of a better term, trying to learn to pray better. One of the things I'm learning about better prayer is that sometimes my prayers are a little too much in my own head. And so if I, I, can, I can pray my own stuff sort of in a loop over and over and over again, I find myself going back to my own almost cliches, saying the same verses, quoting the same promises. And while that is fine and dandy, it becomes almost a, a loop you just sort of repeat when you go into prayer. And I found that um, that's why I've started buying prayer books. Never done that in my life. I've, I've begun purchasing prayer books and I've begun re-examining the book of Psalms as a prayer book. And I've begun praying them. Sometimes quietly, sometimes up here, sometimes aloud as I'm trying to expand my ability to pray. Because what I've found is if I pray Paul White prayers, then I get in Paul White's head. But sometimes if I pray an Eduardo prayer that he wrote down, that he prayed, I learned something. I don't just learn something about Eduardo. I learned something about how to view God through someone else's eyes. And it might be exactly how I need to pray in the space I'm in, but I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have that in my tool belt to know how to pray that. And so it's why prayer books can sometimes be valuable. All of that was just a freebie, just to say this. What, one thing I'm learning in prayer though is prayer is not about filling up a prayer log. It's not about consuming time on the clock. It's not about I've got to get my prayer in. Prayer becomes participatory. Almost instantly when we start to get serious with prayer, we sense the Holy Spirit reaching down into our substance, into our lives, and opening doors and saying, okay, you prayed about this, now here you go. (laughs) And offers you the chance to live out what you've prayed. You've made a request and then the Holy Spirit, it might not be overnight, but the Holy Spirit, I've even found sometimes it's years later. You'll pray about something, you'll ask the Lord a question, he doesn't give you an answer. And two years later in Bible study, boom, there's the answer. And the Holy Spirit goes, you prayed about that a couple years ago. I've been growing you to where you could hear my answer. Cause you would, and, and so many times he had to grow me there because once I got the answer, I went, oh, I'd have never bought that two years ago. And the Holy Spirit's going, I know, it's why I didn't tell you two years ago. Cause I know you better than you know yourself. And, and, uh, and, and so part of it is me participating, reaching my hand out in prayer. That's what prayer is. I'm, I'm extending that to him, but I'm not just extending it and running. I'm extending that and I'm leaving my hands there and allowing the Holy Spirit, who doesn't just pour stuff out and go grab it, sometimes reaches out and grabs your hand and says, come on, I'm going to show you how we're going to do this. 
Pray and be prepared because when you pray, there's a, there is a participation in what happens that is offered to you by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we say no in that and our prayer shows itself to be either vain or shallow. And sometimes our prayer shows itself to be repetitious. I was just praying because it was time to pray. And we'll find that out as the Holy Spirit offers us a chance to fulfill what those prayers are. And so I want us to take a look at an Old Testament story today. Before we do, I have a quote that I've wrote down a long, long time ago, and I just love it. Miroslav Volf, a fantastic scholar, wrote an amazing book called Exclusion and Embrace, or Inclusion, Exclusion and Embrace. There is something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem you are unwilling to resolve. That's one that I haven't been able to shake for a while because I've prayed about a lot of problems that I thought prayer's the only thing I can contribute. I'll pray about it at the least, and I'd even make this statement, the least I can do is pray about it. And then sometimes what happens is an opportunity comes to you to be the answer to the prayer you're praying, to help provide the answer, the footing for someone else. And we'll find very quickly whether or not we meant what we prayed. I think Volf kind of hits me between the eyes with the phrase hypocritical. That's powerful. I don't want it to be hypocritical. I want it to you know, be sloppy or lazy or ignorant. Hypocritical is fierce. It means I went with one thing but when given the opportunity to take the stand for the thing I went with, I backed off. And I've got to admit, I've prayed that way sometimes to where I found that what I really meant by my thoughts and prayers are with you is sometimes what I really meant was I don't want to do anything else. So I'm just going to say my thoughts and prayers are with you because I know there's some things I could do, but they're going to be really costly. And so the very least that I can do is go, here's some thoughts and prayers. And that's that example of tossing it out there with my hands and then yanking them back. Because what if when I toss them out, they grab it and go, okay, come here. Here's what I need. And I want to think that I'm perfectly willing to take that hand and go, but I know better. It's not always the case. And I hope that you are perfectly willing. Um, What we're going to find in this story is an example of someone who, who was willing because the the Bible gives us, Bible actually gives us examples of people on both sides of those things that, that said one thing and was unable to do it, but I don't want to focus on the negative. Um, not only have such great positive stories in the Word. So I want to take you to the book of Ruth. This is a fantastic little glimpse in the Old Testament, and I want to start at the top of chapter one. What I really want to try to accomplish this afternoon and not exhaust you, Ruth is not a long book, even if I went at it, of course, you you know we can drag four chapters into a few years. So uh, we've done that. Um, uh, four cha- just a few chapters long, and we, but we won't, we won't exhaust and examine every verse. I do kind of want to lay the story out for you. And I thought the best way to do that would be to open with the first few verses because it's poetic, its narrative flow is beautiful, and it lays out some concepts that kind of help get this off the ground. When I talk about praying and being prepared, I'm actually going to very specifically talk about a prayer that happens in the middle of this book And then the individual that prays the prayer gets challenged to actually fulfill his own prayer. 
right in the middle of the book. And so you get to see this play out in real time as you flow with the narrative of, of Ruth. Now, I'm not going to insult anyone's intelligence. I'm going to assume you've read the book of Ruth. You have a rudimentary understanding of what this story is about. But we have a lot of people who watch, a lot of people who follow these messages and may not have. So I want to encourage anyone that's watching or listening to take a couple of moments and read the book of Ruth. It really won't take you 30 minutes, if that, to read this little book and at least familiarize yourself with the narrative flow and the narrative structure. And that'll keep us from having to hit every single part, but we will hit some highlights. Watch the first five verses of Ruth chapter one. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. This is your context of when this is happening. By the way, the book that precedes this in your narrative chronologically is the book of Judges. If you're looking at a hard copy of your book, Ruth's probably laying on one page or the other. If you flip that or go back one book, you're going to be in Judges chapter 21. So this is actually during the time of the Judges, and there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There's a great piece of narrative irony hidden here in the Hebrew that gets a little lost to us in the English. And the irony is Moab is outside the people of God. Moab are strangers. Moab are Gentiles. Not to put too fine a point on it, Moab has been known to kill their own children in sacrificial offerings to their gods. This is as heathen as it gets. That's blatant to a Hebrew reader. Moab's as bad as it gets. It's not just some peripheral country. It's the total polar opposite of everything. The great irony in this text is that there's a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem, Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. So a man leaves the house of bread to go down into the darkness of Moab because there's no bread in the house of bread. And so we're having to leave the place where we should have sustenance to go to a place where we would never go to get sustenance. And that's the land of Moab. And so you're gonna walk out of the gate, first couple of verses, if you're reading this for the first time, there's odd stuff happening. And so you know you're in for a ride. You've got a strange story on your hands that God would even follow this story down into the darkness, which tells you God loves to follow your story down into the darkness. Uh, the great work of the Spirit happens when we take the story down into the darkness so that you're never at a loss for the grace of God to find you in the middle of those journeys down into Moab. So he goes down, his wife and his two sons, Verse 2, the name of the man is Elimelech, the name of his wife is Naomi. This is just like a script, like you're setting up a stage play. Here's the characters. Here's what they're named. Here's where they're from. Elimelech, Naomi, his two sons are Malon and Chilion. They are Ephrathites, which means they are from the Hebrew tribe of Ephraim of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in Ephraim, and the greater area is Judah, which would be uh, adjacent to what we might no, is Israel. And they went to the country of Moab. There's the darkness. And they don't just journey there, they remain there. So they lived there long enough to put down roots. And the narrative goes really fast. This is why I love these first few verses, because it says a bunch in a few verses, because we skip years right here. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left, and her two sons were left with her. So Elimelech is now out of the picture. Verse 4. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about a decade, about 10 years, and both now, watch the narrative, speed up again. Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons 
and she also survived her husband. And what is interesting about this passage is if you're a Hebrew reader and you're reading this story, it's moving very quickly. It's involving Moab. You're not supposed to go down to Moab. The irony, the ha 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 funny irony is you left the house of bread to go down into a place because your house of bread had no bread. And what happens when you go down there is you pay the price by dying. Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Chilion dies. And while they're there, they break the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy. Seventh chapter of Deuteronomy tells Israelites and Judites, do not marry Moabites. It names them specifically that they are not to make wives of the Moabites. And yet here we are, four and five verses into Ruth chapter one, and everything's wrong. <laughs> it just can't get any worse. And so you've married two Moabite guys and the death has occurred. The husband has died. The two boys have died. Ruth and Orpah are the two daughters-in-law. Um, these are sort of Hebrewized names of uh, Gentile girls. Um, Orpah, by the way, fun fact, uh, was supposed to be, I heard this one time. I, I don't know if it's true. I think I heard her say it. Orpah was supposed to be Oprah's name. And her name was misspelled on her birth certificate as Oprah. And her mom just went with it because she thought it was pretty and had never heard it before. And the reason she had never heard it before is because I don't think anybody had ever been named Oprah. Um, and it was because she was supposed to be Orpah. So it would have still been O. The legacy would have been the same. The empire would have still stood. But um, it would have been a little different definition. That meant nothing to you for sake of the gospel. That was absolutely a freebie that you will regret probably even having as part of your information. So both of them die, the husbands are dead, the, all three husbands are dead, and the journey then turns. Let me just kind of lay Ruth out for you a little bit. Ruth's a story of love, devotion, redemption, set during the time of the book of Judges. It's meant to show individual faithfulness in a time of national faithlessness, which might be apropos in any culture at any time, that individuals can be faithful inside of a place where no one else is faithful or where there is a lack of faith. It also serves as a lighthouse, the book of Ruth does. A lighthouse in a time of darkness inside of an Old Testament canon because if you've ever stumbled around in the book of Judges, there's a lot of darkness. You get to Ruth, it's like someone turned a light switch on and grace floods in to the middle of the Old Testament canon in this bizarre and beautiful tapestry. And the reason I say it's lighthouse in the middle of darkness, look how Judges ends. And I told you, Judges is the book right in front of this. The last verse of the book of Judges says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the recipe for chaos right there, by the way. You want to talk about hell on earth is everybody just do whatever you think's right. Just give that a shot. Go for what, no, no principles, no standards. Just do whatever's right in your own eyes. And then here comes Ruth, very next verse. And we go down into Moab. And if you're kind of, if you're flowing out of judges, everybody does what's right in his own eyes. You take your family out of Bethlehem and go into Moab. You go, well, that's what happens when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You end up going down into Moab. And then you naturally think, well, the price you pay is Elimelech dies. Malon and Chilion marry two Moabite girls. They're not supposed to do that. What's the price they're going to pay? Malon dies. Chilion dies. Naomi drags her daughters-in-law and they begin to make the journey back towards Jerusalem or Bethlehem. And as they journey, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and says, um, there's really nothing for you where we're going. So, you, you know, you might want to stay back. 
Um, on our way to that journey, I want to show you the first of what will be several highlight moments in Ruth chapter 1 where we get God wrong, but God keeps moving anyway. And, and what I love to say is there's a lot of moments in the Bible where we get God wrong and God moves anyway. Um, we get God wrong a lot in the narrative. We get God wrong a lot in the way we think He treats people, and yet God just keeps stepping in and loving. Um, there's a funny story in rabbinical tradition. You remember that story in Kings? I know I'm, on a, I'm, I'm chasing a little rabbit here. I got to get him. You remember that story in 2 Kings where Elisha is sitting on the top of a mountain and a bunch of kids walk up and start making fun of him because he's bald? This is one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. And Elisha gets his feelings hurt. That's the only way you can really say it. He just kind of gets... Because why is a grown man getting so mad at a bunch of kids calling him bald? He kind of gets his feelings hurt. He gets a little embarrassed. And he calls two she-bears out of the forest. And the bears come rushing out of the forest and maul the kids to death. Remember that early in 2 Kings? If you forgot about that, there's a reason. You probably blocked that out. There's probably a reason because we didn't teach that in Sunday school. It's one of those, you, you, you bring the kids in and go, we're going to skip this story because this one's kind of rough. Um, and you read that and you go, what? How do we justify this? Like God sitting in heaven waiting on his prophet to go, listen, if they make fun of your hair, you just let me know. And I got a couple bears just waiting to eat kids alive. Because if God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, if he's going to do it then, why won't he do it now? And by the way, this is how people justify bad things happening in the world. They go, look, God, God killed a bunch of kids with a couple bears in the Old Testament. Why won't he tear up an island with a hurricane? I mean, if he's got to kill some innocent kids, who cares? God does what he got. There's a funny, I'm, I'm letting this rabbit run too long. Let's kill him. Um, rabbinical tradition, here's how they handle that. Hebrew rabbis. They say, didn't happen, cock and bull story. That's what we would call cock and bull story. And they go, and so to this day in rabbinical tradition, any story that makes God look like the devil, they title it bears and forest, forest and bears. So if you say to them, what do you think about God right here? They'll laugh and say, forest and bears, forest and bears. I read that this week. I'd never read that in my life. Read that from rabbinical tradition. They'll say forest and bears on any story that makes God look like the devil. And what they'll say is that story was inserted by people who didn't understand God. Forest and bears. Or in modern English, cock and bull. Didn't happen. Now you take that for what you, what you want. I actually like that answer better than, well, sometimes if you, people make fun of you, you can use the name of Jesus and have bears come out of the woods and kill them. Well... Elisha didn't use the name of Jesus, I know. But you can have God come out of the woods and kill them. All right? So God gets a bad rap. I'm going to show you how in the book of Ruth, God gets a bad rap sometime as well. Forced and bears. You know, like maybe God isn't doing all that we think he's doing. Ruth 1.4, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there 10 years. Deuteronomy says you can't do this. There's number one. You're going to get three of these in chapter one where God gets, where, where, God overlooks either the actions or the vocalization of one of his people to extend grace anyway. Let me say it that way. God either overlooks the actions or the vocalization of his people to extend grace in spite of ourselves, even when we do things wrong. So if you want to just, if you're just listing moralities, this, 
there's punishment that has to be meted out because according to the book of Deuteronomy, you can't do this. So they're on their way back to Bethlehem and Ruth looks at her daughters-in-laws and tells them, um, you don't have to come back with me. And then this happens in verse 11. Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why are you going with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And this speaks back to the Hebrew tradition that if, they, if she does have more children, those sons are obligated to, the, to Ruth and Orpah during, due to the law of leveret marriage. And so the next brother would have to marry them. Verse 12, turn back my daughters, go. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should, if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Forest and bears, not true. The hand of the Lord doesn't work against us, but in Ruth's mentality, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord is working against me. That's another example. They continue to argue. Orpah decides to go back. Ruth gives that famous poetic speech, entreat me not to leave thee, nor from turning to follow after thee. Wherever thou goest, I will go. Wherever thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my gods. Wherever you die and are buried, that's where I will die and be buried. One of the most passionate, impassioned speeches in the entire Bible is delivered by a Moabitess girl. Beautiful. Maybe one of the most great reflections of the gospel and of loyalty. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. We've been quoting this at marriages forever and in, in weddings. And it's, a, it's a, the speech of a little Moabitess girl trying to convince her mother-in-law that she needs to come back with her. And then Naomi says this in verse 19 of Ruth chapter 1. The two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they come to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I say forest and bears. The Almighty hasn't dealt bitterly with Naomi. In fact, I'm going to show you how little God believes her. We don't ever see anybody call her Mara, the entire book. She tries to get them to. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. God dealt very bitterly with me. Holy Spirit won't stand for it. For the rest of the book, no one calls her Mara. Everyone calls her Naomi. When God changes your name, God will use your new name. When God calls Jacob Israel, Jacob heel catcher, cheater, deceiver, Israel, he who contends with God. Book of Genesis, it's Jacob, 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 Israel. Jacob, Jacob, Israel, Israel, Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Jacob, Israel, 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 Jacob, Israel, 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 Israel. And now we don't call them the children of Jacob. We call them the children of Israel. God wins. God changes your name, God wins. You falsely condemn God to Mara, you get one shot. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi, 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 Naomi. The rest of the book, God just ignores this bitterness argument. Aren't you glad God doesn't see you the way you see you at your worst moment? Ruth gives us that insight that God goes, you're going to call yourself one thing at your worst moment. I will not call you what you call yourself at your worst moment. I will call you what I call you. And don't argue with me. And so you, you might think of yourself one way. It appears to me that God thinks of you entirely another way. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. The Lord has dealt with me very bitterly. 21. I went out full. The Lord brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? God hasn't testified against her. 
God hasn't afflicted her. Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so the chapter ends, great chapter break. The end, it ends at the beginning of something else. It ends at the beginning of a barley harvest and I introduce you to that barley harvest in, with one verse. The next verse in the, cha- in the book is chapter two, verse one. There was a relative of Naomi's husband. Here comes Leveret marriage. The law that the next kin is the one who's supposed to pick up the mantle of responsibility in the family. And so it introduces a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, His name was Boaz. And here comes the great, what we call Christological, messianic savior character of the book of Ruth. This becomes the reflection, the shadow, I guess you could say, of the substance that is Jesus. Boaz becomes the the kinsman redeemer. He becomes the one who buys you with with rights. He buys you with his own name. He buys you with his own authority. He brings in the outsider. easy gospel sermon here is that we are the outsider. We are the Moabitess. We are the one from the darkness and Jesus brings us in uh, unto himself. But what sometimes gets lost on us when we're presenting that as the gospel message is that what makes Boaz an even better reflection of Jesus is his heritage. Jesus, for his entire earthly ministry, has been most likely ridiculed and condemned for where he comes from, the poor backwater part of the world. He faces accusations of being born under fornication. We've read that in the Gospels where they say, where the Pharisees say to him, we aren't products of fornication, as if saying to Jesus, we don't know what was going on with your mom and dad, but hey, we're not like that. Jesus has to suffer through that throughout his life. And he's dealing with an educated religious aristocracy of his day and does not carry the weights and the titles and the and the education that they carry the background of jesus is not noble and honorable though you can trace his lineage to david matthew's genealogy in matthew chapter one includes the dredges of jesus's past these sinners from the out from outside of israel in his bloodline as if to show that the heritage of Jesus is not so great, but have you ever thought about Boaz's family? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begets David. You know where we're going, but did you realize who Boaz's mama was? There was a prostitute that ran a brothel at the gate of Jericho. And when God's spies come into the land of Jericho to spy out the land, they go to the house of ill repute because nobody knows what's going on in town like the whorehouse. And they stop in at the whorehouse run by a woman named Rahab, who famously becomes the first, and we, as far as we know, the only convert in the city of Jericho who places faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is spared when the walls come a-tumbling down, and the only person saved is the woman with the scarlet thread outside of her window. We love to preach that as the blood that runs out of the window of Rahab, and she's redeemed because she claims the blood. And 
fine and dandy, but what isn't often pointed out is that the Jesus character of the book of Ruth has as his mama a former prostitute. I like it even more when I start to see Boaz as Jesus because whatever darkness and question marks Jesus walks into the room with, Boaz walks in with some of his own. And I love it that at Calvary, Jesus identifies with all of us Moabitesses and Moabites and all of our darknesses and our failures and all of our narrative flaws. He can agree with us by becoming us. He is not just some savior on a distant hill calling us home. He's not at the top of the mountain begging us to run and jump. He's come down the mountain and stuck his hands into the dirt and said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That's the beauty of that Boaz character from Ruth. The story continues that where Ruth goes out at the time of the barley harvest to glean the corners of the field, the, the program in Israel all the way back into the Torah was that you did not harvest the edges of your own field. You saved them for the poor, the homeless, and the stranger. There was two things in the economic code of Israel that would scream socialism in America today. Thing number one, there was to be common space between private property. No property was to butt up against another property. Every single privately owned place in Israel was to have common area in between so that those who could not afford land could live on the public space. Isaiah got so tired of this that he says, you have butted lands up against lands and you incur the wrath of God. And the second thing, among many, but these were the two biggies, the second thing was that you were not allowed to harvest 100% of your own field. You go, well, it's mine. I ought to do what I want with it. And God said, nothing is yours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The field is mine first. You never take the corners. Cut the corner wide. When you harvest, harvest in a circle. Don't harvest in a square. Whatever's left on the corner belongs to those people that live on common land. You grew it for them. They can harvest it themselves. Here was a third one. Just about as unpopular as the other two. Don't ever reach down to pick something up twice. If you miss the bag during harvest, you don't get to go back to the dirt and pick it up. Kind of a double problem. One, it adds dirt to the harvest, but two, if it hit the ground, it belongs to the man who's behind you, gleaning in the field, picking up your scraps that are left over. Ruth goes out into the field in her first day and she harvests behind the harvesters. The Bible says that when you harvest behind the harvesters, you're basically just walking behind the people who are picking and whatever misses the bag, you pick up and put in your own little bag. And you're allowed by law to have whatever you pick up. Boaz watches this happen across his field and he calls one of his servants aside and goes, who's that girl? And they tell him who she is and he knows that's the relative. He knows he's the kinsman redeemer. In one of the great moments of grace in all of the Old Testament, he says, when you go back out into the field, drop some handfuls on purpose. Ruth so that she may pick them up. Which means that the rest of the day, all of the harvesters, when they would grab to drop into the bag, would miss the entire bag and drop it on the ground next to their hip and move on to the next plant. Every now and then, miss on purpose and drop it on the ground. And Ruth was coming through, had to be amazed. 
She's thinking, this is, the, this is the greatest day of my life. Picking up all of these handfuls on purpose that Boaz silently was dropping her way. And I, you don't have to work hard to see your Jesus at work in making sure that every now and then in your life, even in your fallen, broken, blackened, Moabite-like state, he drops a few handfuls on purpose for you once in a while that you go, wow, that was good of God. I don't know. I didn't do anything to deserve that. Where'd that come from? And Boaz says a prayer. Boaz answers and says to Ruth, it has been fully reported to me that all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Boaz is impressed. Rightfully so. Verse 12. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Whose wings are you under? The Lord God of Israel. Jehovah, by the way, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jehovah in the Hebrew, covenant God. You who are outside of covenant have come into the land of covenant and are asking for refuge under the wings of the covenant God. He goes, may God give you refuge under whose wings you've come to trust. And Ruth goes home and she says to her mother-in-law, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. Check out all the barley that I harvested. And Naomi goes, no, I don't believe it. How did you come up with so much? And she goes, this guy that uh, I, I don't know who he was. And what did he look like? And there's this funny little story at the end of the chapter where Naomi goes, oh, honey, he's the richest man in town. Don't go to anybody else's field. You go right back to his field tomorrow. And she does. And she's told that that's her kinsman. And that's the one who can redeem her. And in an interesting ceremony, she lays at his feet as he sleeps, a sign that she's offering herself to him in marriage. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees her laying there. And at midnight, he was startled and turned himself. Ruth 3, 8, 9 for the listeners. There a woman was lying at his feet and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. If you read the old King James, you see it say something odd. Spread your skirt for your maidservant, which is an odd statement, especially for us because men don't wear skirts. But then you'd always have it explained to you that she meant spread out your garment and give to me whatever's in that garment. I love that the new King James grabs this word. It's the same word in the Hebrew, by the way, and translates it properly. Let me show you this. Ruth uses the same Hebrew word for wing that Boaz used when he prayed over Ruth. Remember what he said? May the covenant God of Israel under whose wings you've come to trust bless you. And then when the first chance Ruth gets, she says to him, spread your wings over me. She grabs his word. She's not a Hebrew, but she grabs his word because it was a word that made sense to her. Her prayer, she challenges him to provide the answer to his own prayer. He asked God to spread his wings over Ruth, but through Ruth, God is telling Boaz to spread his wings over Ruth, which leads me to my statement, don't pray what you are not prepared to do. I, I love this moment where Boaz has got this big religious prayer of, and I'm not cutting Boaz, I've spent this whole message building Boaz up, so I'm not turning on him. But this great moment where Boaz goes, may the covenant God under whose wings you've come to trust provide for you. And then when he gets a moment to hear from Ruth, she goes, okay, you be the wing. 
And she uses his word. And I can, you can hear the spirit booming through this little girl saying to Boaz, that's right, big boy, you be the wing. Don't ask me to do something you aren't willing to do. You asked for her to be under the wing. Well, I'm making you the wing. This is that moment where you lay your prayer out in front of God, your thoughts and your prayers, which can be any great religious spewings you can come up with covered in verses and then take a step back, go back into your world. But we're not always allowed to do that because sometimes we throw that out before the Holy Spirit and then he grabs our hands and goes, okay, you really want to see change? Be the change. You really want the world to be different? Be different. Well, Lord, I just want them to be different. He goes, okay, well then be honest when you pray and stop lying because you're asking me to make a change and I'm offering you the chance to be the change. What you really want is for other people to change. So just go to the Lord and say that. Lord, what I really want are all my enemies to change. It's going to feel weird because you're not going to feel an anointing of the Spirit because you don't pray change onto others. We pray change onto us. I can't repent for Keyshawn. Keyshawn can't repent for me. I can pray God... There's an area I hope it changes mine, but I can't do that for him. True change doesn't happen because somebody else prays I'll change. True change happens because I change. Repentance is the call to me, not just the call to you. To repent is the metanoia, it's to change my mind. When I change my mind, I change the world in which I live. But I can't change your mind. Much of what we're doing in our discussions are bent to change other people's minds to change how other people see things. But all I can do is affect what I can do. My prayer life then is the reflection allowing the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit can do within me and what the Holy Spirit can do to me and what the Holy Spirit can do through me. After this moment, Ruth goes back to Naomi next morning. Remember, it's midnight. Naomi goes, how'd it go? Ruth said, well, I don't know. Seems like, he, seems like he responded positively. I always love the way chapter 3 ends. Naomi says, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded this matter this day. Ruth, relax. Don't do anything else. You've already made your petition known. Let the man do his work. I've always made this comparison that in John chapter 19, Pontius Pilate has one of the most unheralded moments to me in the entire Bible. Because um, when we think of Pontius Pilate, even the Apostles' Creed, he gets a bad rap. I mean, he delivers up Jesus, right? There's no positive thing about Pontius Pilate. But I think we missed one little moment. There's that moment in John 19 when Jesus is about to go to the cross or about to be released. And Pontius Pilate is the one who can release him. And he walks out onto his balcony over the crowd. And Pilate presents to them Barabbas, who's a murderer. And when he presents Jesus, he goes, Behold the man. And we don't lose that in the English. We retain it. Behold the man. And Paul grabs it in his letter to Timothy and goes, we have one mediator between God, between heaven and earth, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So I always thought it was such a powerful connection, like Paul reaching back to quote Pilate. Pilate doing more theology in one offhand throwaway remark 
than we could ever imagine because Christ becomes the man on the earth, the new man on the earth. Paul would even use it again, sort of, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he would say, in the first Adam, Hebrew word Adam meaning the man, in the first the man, all men die. In the last the man, Christ, all men are made alive. So here comes the man. I mean, you drop that back into the Ruth story. You have Naomi saying, Ruth, don't worry, just relax. You've already made your petition known. Let the man finish the work. And to me, that's us saying, I've done all I can do. Let the man Christ Jesus finish the work. I can't do anymore. I'm, I'm, I've done all that I can do. Let him finish the work. I want to land with this thought. See, here's, here's what I believe about preaching. This is really elementary, but it's the best I got after 30 years of preaching. All right? Tell a good narrative story that flows left to right, if you can. Chase as few rabbits as possible. I, I chased one good one today, and I was on the trail too long, so we'll leave that alone. Tell as good a narrative story as you can. Make Jesus the hero. That last piece of advice can never be abandoned. You can shoddy the story, you can chase 12 rabbits, you can make a pitiful narrative. Give Jesus the starring role. You're writing a play up here. Give Jesus the starring role. So let's land with Jesus. If I'm praying things, and then I'm requested by the Holy Spirit, Paul, you prayed, now be prepared. Or maybe I'm Boaz, Lord, put her under your wings. And then God goes, you be the wing. Anytime I pray, I have to be prepared to allow the Holy Spirit to do exactly what I'm praying. And we learn this in vivid detail from Jesus. Listen to Jesus praying in John 17, 1. Jesus prayed this, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Before I read any more, just realize that Jesus has just prayed, God, give me the glory that shows everyone who you are. I'm pray, I, I want the glory that accelerates you to the position of glory, that you get to show out and be who we know that you are, and eternal life can come out of knowing the only true God, and they get to know me, the one whom you've sent. Verse 4. Next one. I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished. Greek word teleo. I've already done. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When we read this, we don't read this as a finality prayer for some reason. But it sounds pretty final to me. Jesus goes, I'm done. I have finished the work. Give me the glory that we had before the world began. And in about two hours, he finds himself stumbling out into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he falls down on his knees and he says, Dad, there's a cup that you want me to drink. And I'll drink it. But if we can do this another way, let the cup pass by me. And they show up with swords and with spears to arrest him. And Jesus goes, don't you know that I got a whole legion of angels Waiting in the invisible? I can whoop all of you guys. 
Now, I know I added that last part, but that's the only reason you brag about the invisible angels is if somebody walks up to you with a sword and you got a bunch of swords in the background, you go, guys, what are you doing with your sword? It's, in other words, it's in there. Jesus knows that the glory could be achieved by pulling the sword. And what did he pray in John 17? I'm done, man. I did it. I finished my work. Give me the glory. But don't pray for what you are not willing to be. Jesus never prays what he is not willing to be. And in John 19, 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, there's that cup. It's never going to, it's not always the cup you think it is, but it's the cup. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Teleo or tetelestai, past tense of finished, never to be done again. Perfect tense, rather. Perfect tense, never to be done again. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I thought he was done in, in John 17. In John 17, he prayed. I'm done. Give me the glory you had before the world began. And the Holy Spirit goes, don't say a prayer. You aren't willing to be the handle. And I know God hasn't happened to discipline Jesus here, but we do get the sense in Hebrews that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Not that God and Jesus are in a war, but what we're getting to see is the internal battle of the prayer. The prayer that says, God, here's what I have. Here's what I am. And then God says, yes, what you brought to me, I ask you to now participate in. And if Jesus then finishes the work at Calvary, the work that two chapters ago he said he had already finished, he finishes it because what you pray, you get the opportunity to be the answer to. And just in case, you need a good, soft landing spot for Ruth. Look at how this baby ends in Ruth 4, 16, 17. Naomi took the child that Boaz and Ruth had and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. And Obed grows up and has a kid named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and has eight kids, the eighth of which is named David. And when the flow of the narrative moves right past this, we go out of the judges and into the early days of the kings. And we're just a few chapters away from a little boy with a slingshot fighting lions and bears whose great-grandfather was born... At the end of the book of Ruth, Jesus comes along, son of David, could also be son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz. The prayer he prayed, he was offered the chance to fulfill. And when he fulfilled it, he lived in, in the history books all the way down to the genealogy of Jesus. I think this is it's remarkable. it's too much to ask, I know, that whatever you go out here and pray this week, you end up with this kind of legacy. But get ready. (laughs) That's the point. What you talk to him about, the Father puts the path in front of you and goes, all right, let's go. You have no idea where this could go? It's all right, I'll hold your hand. Pray and be prepared. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word today. What an exciting time. I pray we've made Jesus the star of the story. And we leave this room excited about the Jesus that we see in Boaz. Excited about the possibilities that we see in all of us who are often Ruth. Excited about the idea that sometimes we're Naomi and we think one thing of us, but you think another thing and you win. Most importantly, knowing that when we go out here and we pray... May we never again pray anything that we are not prepared to do. And when we start to pray that way, 
show us, as you always will, exactly what it is you would have us to do. Make us a people who are quick to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.